0: I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP Ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode.
1: Why do you want to bring in PE? Is it to sell the company? Is it to just get some fuel to help the company scale and grow? So basically like a partnership and because different PE firms have different focuses, and so one of the things you want to focus on or know is how is that PE firm funded? If they're funded by institutional investors, more than likely, there is a very defined time frame on how long they're allowed to hold the company. Usually it's in the five to 10 year range. And so that's the first thing understand how they're funded.
0: Well, you're going to love today's episode. We've got a great guest with us today, Matt Lesser. Matt has played the COO and president for a family company that they took from three employees up to 200 and also navigated some massive transitions and change that included a bankruptcy, a liquidation of the family business, a transition and having to regrow the family business, a dad who kind of exited the picture and dropped the company onto his lap. And then secondly, he was also the COO for a private equity firm where they took that company from Uh, 6 to 60 employees, and they had 3,000 within the entire private equity group. He's going to share with us all kinds of lessons from those two roles in terms of hiring great people, how to navigate through the depression that he dealt with, all of the different learnings that he'd had with um, learning how to be a COO really back in the day when they didn't have access to any of the communities that exist today, like the COO Alliance, how he learned from mentors and coaches and from financial advisors to really navigate and build two very successful companies and leading the family business to an exit. Also talks a lot about his belief around people and building a strong people culture with really stringent hiring practices, sharing open book financials and sharing the success in the company. I think you're going to love this episode and definitely one you'll want to check out on our Second in Command podcast YouTube channel as well, where we share all of our top episodes.
1: So Matt, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you, Cameron. I've been looking forward to our conversation today.
0: Yeah, looking forward to learning from you. I um, remember coming across your name online a couple months ago and reached out. And I think it was because you had done some work in around um, private equity as a COO. And I know that we've had a couple of VC firm COOs speak. And then I also know that we have a lot of our members of the COO alliance um, have either sold to private equity or have done M&A stuff or... Um, Are in the process of building to sell to PE firms, so I think you could have some really good experience share for us on that industry, that space. Um, But then also, you have played um, the president role, second in command role inside of a family enterprise. And I grew up in family businesses, and there's a really, I think, unique amount of learning that you can share there as well. There's a group out of Canada called Cafe, which is the Canadian Association of Family Enterprise, and that's all they cover our family-run businesses, but. Did that exist for you at all when you were in that role in the U.S. or did you have to figure that stuff out on, on your own?
1: Um, no, there was nothing like that uh, when I was in that role. Uh, would have been nice to have something like that.
0: So, where did you maybe tell us what the family business was and and what were some of the struggles and you know the trials and tribulations and um, and we'll kind of talk through those some of the
1: lessons as well. Yeah, sure. So it was the uh, um it was in the petroleum industry. We were a wholesale distributor of uh, petroleum products and I uh, after after I went to college I came into the business. Um I really didn't plan to. I was going to actually go on and and uh stay in school. But uh needed a job and so I worked for my dad for a little while and uh, after about a year and a half of that uh decided that I needed to move on. So when I went in to resign he uh he flipped the table on me. And instead of me leaving he left. Oh. And uh, on his way out the door, he uh, turned it over to me. And so here I was, I was a 20, I think it was 24 at the time, maybe 25. And uh, here I was running this company. And uh, I felt like, uh, it's like, man, I, I felt like I was on top of the world at that point, until I began to uncover why he was so quick to get out of Dodge. And, uh, and I began to uncover uh, unpaid trade debt to the tune of about five years worth of earnings. We had some C-stores. And. Uh, the convenience stores, gas stations, and a couple of them were leaking very heavily and polluting neighboring properties. And uh, the EPA uh, doesn't like that. And then the big one was, is that he uh, didn't pay withholding tax for a year and the IRS likes to have their tax money and, uh, and that's a criminal offense. And so, uh, so I had all these things just bearing down on me at the same time, literally within the first three to four months of taking over six months if you, I guess, all together. And uh, and I was facing, basically, the company was was failing and was going to fail. I got really sick. I spiraled into a very clinical, deep, dark depression. And uh, it was during that depression where literally like one miracle after another began to happen. And as I came out of that, then uh, a really good family friend, a successful businessman that lived nearby uh, in our area uh, that my mom knew, I hired my mom to come work for me. Um, we wound up getting had to take that business through an organized um uh, an organized liquidation. And then we started a new company. And when we started the new company, then my mom, we started it with her because she was not tainted at all in the process. I was. And so she became the CEO and I became the president. And then we we ran that company. We started just with three of us. It was me, her, and one other one other person that worked for our family for 35 years. And uh the business literally just took off. And uh about 12 years later, uh, it had grown from about three employees to just a little under 200, and uh, we'd expanded geographically, and so it was a heck of a ride, Cameron, a heck of a ride. Wow, like there's so much there, and I hate the term to unpack, but there's
0: so much there to unpack. Um, (laughs) Shit. So- did your dad know like that all this was happening, like or you know, was it planned? Was he doing this on purpose, or was he just kind of sloppy and loose and shit got away from him and it got out of control?
1: So uh good question. um I can't you know i I've had to kind of reconcile in my own mind that um that it wasn't intentional, yeah, and so otherwise I'd go crazy. Yeah, but uh there was a uh, there were some definite things that were uh intentional. You know, he, uh, if, if you looked at once he left, he moved, uh, 1200 miles away and it was, it was kind of the stuff you'd see on talk shows. You know, he had a, uh, basically a whole second life that we weren't necessarily aware of. Okay. And, uh, and that's where a lot of that money went that he took from the company. And so, um, did he intentionally try to, you know, kind of stick me with it. And so that I took the fall for it all. I don't think so, but it's just what happened.
0: Right. Wow, what a what a crazy unpacking! And then, so I'm I'm sure the clinical depression just came from like, what the fuck has happened, and how could Dad do this, and what am I stuck with, and like that's a brutal. I mean, you're a kid at 25. Like, oh yeah, we, we think we're adults, <laughs> but we're we look back now and we're like, we had no idea, right? <laughs> I had no clue. <laughs> yeah. So, how did you get through the
1: depression? Um. So it was a combination of uh, medication and counseling. And so, and, and coaching. So I had both a coach and a counselor, um, that I met with, uh, at least twice a week for the first year. And, uh, and I was completely removed from when I was removed from the business. This is when this, uh, friend of the family came in, he brought a team of people in, uh, including an attorney, an accountant, an environmental, uh, expert. And basically it's just like, okay, let's just see what you guys have. You know, do you, let's see if there's anything here that's tangible that we can use to start over Or if it's really hopeless and, um, and what they found is, is that there was enough there to start over, but with my mom, um, it's probably should it, not probably it should have been hers anyway. I mean, she was married to the guy. It should not have come to me anyway. So he was, it was basically an F you to my mom to just pass by. And so, so there's a lot of rights we had to wrong or a lot of wrongs we had to write along the way. So, so that's how I got through it. Yeah. So the combination of
0: the coaching, the combination of therapy, the combination of some medication, and then in turning it around. So okay, so once once you then decide to then turn it, and then you you guys really did scale it. What were some of the things that you think you did right? Because uh, you were doing it right in an industry that your dad had done it wrong. So and you did it very successfully to get it up to a couple hundred people. What did you do right?
1: Um, so the first thing we did right is um, we hired very very well. We hired great people. So we uh, we had a very stringent hiring process and um, we built, and that was number one. Number two, we were transparent. We shared our financials. We shared everything. If we were struggling, we shared that. If we were doing well, we shared that. We also shared in the successes. And so if we had a banner year, we didn't just keep all the profits for our family. We shared those profits with the people that were helping us build this thing. Another thing that we did right was uh, leadership. And that was something, you know, because you're right. I was a 25-year-old kid I and I went to business school. They don't teach you in business school how to take a business through what I had to go through, nor do they teach you how to scale it from three people to 200, especially in the area of leadership. And so one of the things I was just hungry for was, okay, I need to learn how to be a leader and I got to learn how to do it really fast, because I'm hiring people that are smarter than me. They're older than me. They're more experienced than me. And I have to figure out, and, and they're calling me boss. And I have to lead these people in a way that motivates them, that keeps them engaged, that they share ownership. And so, literally, it was what so it was anybody I could know that was leading a business, whether it was small business, being a business. Okay. Can I buy you lunch? Can I buy an hour of your time? What books should I be reading? What classes should I take? What blah, blah, blah. And so, it was just this an insatiable appetite to learn because I knew if I didn't, this thing was not going to, it was never get any bigger than me. And that's not what I wanted. Did
0: you get involved in the entrepreneurs organization, EO or YPO at all, or Vistage? Were you involved in any of these kinds of organizations or was it?
1: I know I wasn't, you know, this was, I'm not sure, I'm sure they existed, but I was, um, I was, it was like, this was the late nineties uh, into the early two thousands. And so mid, mid nineties. And so it was just, I didn't know, I didn't do any of that. Yeah. They,
0: they did exist, but, you know, the Internet wasn't strong enough to be able to find them all. And unless you had kind of bumped into them at a street or a bar one night, you wouldn't have known. So where did you I mean, you mentioned, but can you give us some specific books, some specific courses, some specific mentors that, that helped you with learning?
1: Yeah. So um, I'll start with the mentors, because that was the most impactful one. I had I, I had a uh, uh, a local business the guy who helped us restart. He took me under his wing and uh, a very successful business uh, businessman. He started literally in his, uh, in a phone booth and grew it to with just himself. And he grew it to a $700 million company that he wound up selling in the late 2000, early uh, like 2007, eight, eight ish, I guess it was. And um, so he was one and he met with me weekly, literally for the first, uh, he met with me weekly for the first two years. And then we met, I think at least once a month um for the next five, six years. So he, him, uh an attorney in town. Um that became a really he also became my attorney, but more than that, he was just passionate about helping young uh, business professionals that uh needed, you know, basically needed mentoring. So him, I had uh I had a a, a pastor. So wanted, you know, this whole spiritual side, make sure it was okay there. Um met with him at least once a month. And then there was a uh, accountant and I had an accountant friend that I met with. And basically it's like, okay. So I was asking a lot of questions. Like, okay, I need to learn more than what I learned in college or from an accounting side, finance side, the legal side. So it was, so those are the people that just poured into me from everything from business to personal. I mean, I didn't, I love what you said. You know, I was a 25 year old kid wet behind the ears. I didn't know anything newly married my, you know, my wife and I now she's, she's watching me go through this deep depression, brought ready to kill myself. And, uh, and so yeah, I didn't know what it was to be a father. I didn't, we didn't have kids obviously, but to be a dad or be a husband, be a dad. And so all those things. So books, oh man. So I read a lot of books on leadership. I, uh, so, um, Stephen Covey's, the seven habits of highly successful people. That was a big one for me, Or highly effective people. That was a big one for me. The timing of them. I don't remember all the timing. So th- it was that one. Um, emotional intelligence. I read a lot of books on just understanding yourself and others. I, I read a lot about like Myers Briggs, uh Disc, um, just trying to understand who I am, who others are.
0: Those are huge. I think I think I think personality profiles are massively underappreciated for understanding oneself. And understanding the others on our team, mm-hmm. and I feel like personality profiles are used for the wrong reason when people use them for hiring. Oh yes, that's not what they're for. They're not. They're not to hire somebody. They're the once you've got them, let's learn about each other and get to understand each other so that we can actually build a better relationship with each other, right? That so that that's probably was huge. But I also think the big one is is that mentor, right? I think your your lawyer, your accountant, those are all good advice. But it sounds like that mentor and weekly coaching was massive for you.
1: Oh man it was massive. Yeah. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be sitting here today
0: without that. I really wouldn't. So I know this is leaning back 20 years to talk about that, but do you think that there was um, anything that helped you be a better mentee, like to help you be coached? Because the coaching relationship is two ways, right? It's, it's one, the person either giving advice or using the Socratic method. And the other is us turning to them and being open and being vulnerable and being trustworthy. And, and asking for help and sometimes too. So what was it that you did that allowed you to be coachable?
1: I think one, I was just hungry. I was, I was hungry to learn. And, uh, and I guess there was, there was really no question I was afraid to ask. And that was a, you know, I should have put my grandfather in that list too, because he mentored me from the time I was a kid. But, uh, you know, one of the things that he taught me is he's like, you know, he say, Matthew, always be willing to appear to be dumb for the moment, than be ignorant for a lifetime. And so he said, like, always ask questions. And is like, I can never let anybody tell you that questions are stupid. And so, and I took that to heart. You know, I asked questions of everybody and I had people that got frustrated with me because I asked so many questions, but I didn't care because I really wanted to learn. And so um, I asked a lot of questions. I was hungry. I pursued. So I initiated contact. And so after the first time that we met, first couple of times, I'm the one who said, oh, okay, when can we meet again? And he was very specific. He's like, you know, after every time we meet, you're going to have homework. You're going to have assignments to complete. When they're complete, you let me know, we'll meet again. So that was kind of my ticket for admission. Wow. And so wow. I did. And um, and so that's what because I I kept wanting to learn. And so, and that helped me actually later as as now I mentor. I, I do the same thing. It's like, okay, I I'm willing to give you my time. I'm willing to invest it, yes. but you have to be willing to work. Yeah, you gotta you gotta be willing to do the work.
0: Did uh, have you reached out to him, by the way, in the last few years to say thank you for the work twenty years ago?
1: Well, it uh, it was a little bit more than that actually. When I sold the company, I went to work for him. Oh, cool. Okay, nice. So, yeah.
0: um, I think it's it's interesting. I have a mentor from thirty years ago, and I I pinged him recently, and I just said, hey, I just want to say thanks." Like, I learned a shit ton from you over those years, and I know that you knew it at the time, but like, I still use so much of what you taught me, and I really appreciate it because it wasn't when well, now yours was probably a paid relationship, but you know, I wasn't even paying for the coaching, right? But even if it's a paid relationship, it's still yeah. it's still so valuable. All right. So then you made the transition. Oh, and you also talked about um, you know really stringent hiring, sharing financials, sharing successes. So did you guys follow the Jack Stack great game of business model for Open Book Financials? Or did you have a model for that? Or was it just your accountant helping you?
1: It was um, a lot of this was trial and error, man. And so, no, we just decided that we would... There were many things that my dad did that we didn't want to do. And one of those was tied to financial. So it's, it's difficult to take from your own business if you're sharing openly what your own business is making. And so we just wanted to, there are just certain things that we saw that were done that we wanted to do the opposite of. And that's what we did. Um, so, but yes, our accountant did help us on, on, and what, how the formatting and that kind of stuff. But, you know, literally it was, you know, if one of our employees wanted to know, you know, how much money was in the bank, we'd tell them.
0: Yeah. That's, that was a lesson I learned when I was uh, 20 years old running my first house painting business was, and it's actually easier to open up the financials than one thinks, right? It, that most employees think we're making more than we are as the owner or as an operator. Most of them think the management team is earning more than they are. Um, and most of them have no idea about all the expenses, but they know the revenue, right? We've always got sales targets, but they don't have any idea of all the expenses in a company. That's right. Did you have a good system for the open book financials? Did you? Can you walk us through what that system was to open them up monthly? Uh,
1: we did it quarterly, and so no, there was not really a system that we used. I just literally would take the uh, the month end close and uh, and compile a quarterly, and basically just take a copy of the P and L and a copy of the balance sheet, and I would distribute it and say here you go and uh and if anybody asked for cash flow i don't think anybody actually asked for cash flow statements but and we go over i would literally unpack the p l and unpack the balance sheet so people could see you know here's where we are here's where we need to improve so it, it turned into a great discussion because it was okay well here's um you know here are things in on the on the expense side then we did on i uh i got very detailed on the expenses i showed the detailed expense statement rather than just um big buckets so that way they could see, you know, this is what it's costing, you know, our, some of our biggest, especially our biggest line items. So.
0: Yeah. We were very similar at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We did a monthly open book financial meeting. It was requirement for all employees to attend and we'd walk them through the PL at times the balance sheet, but we, we always taught them a little bit too. Like every, every month we taught them a little bit more. It's like, well, here's what, Oh, you know, overhead is, or here's what COGS is, or here's what like, you know um traveling and and then we opened up the general ledger as well to show them all the expenses and it was extraordinary how much money they helped us save because they they started to see the business like operators right is that where the sharing the successes came from and sharing some of the profits with people
1: yeah it led to that absolutely because when people saw you know if if they saw waste especially and it helped us eliminate that waste obviously that dropped right to the bottom line and so um because they took ownership in helping us we wanted to give that ownership right back to them you we weren't necessarily uh, big fans of giving away stock in the company, but we did we did have programs that were, had like ghost shares and, and those kinds of things. But, uh, but we just try to be very generous when it came times to sharing. You know, whether it be bonuses or whatever it was, and letting them see, okay, this is how you helped us get to where we are. This is where we were. This is where we are. This is where we're going. And uh, and we had a lot of lot of loyalty because of that.
0: I love that. All right, so then you transitioned. Did you sell the company? What was the the kind of exit for you to then go off and start working in PE?
1: Yeah, uh, so I sold it. We uh, we had two parts of it. We had our retail side and wholesale side, and so I sold it to two different buyers. and uh, And it came down to my mom got cancer, and um, she fought it for several years, and she just got to the point she was tired, and she wanted to sell. Um, I was able to earn back into ownership over time, and uh, so she basically wanted to sell her half to me. And uh, at the time, um, I was starting to get a little antsy, want to do something a little bit bigger. And I also was looking at it, too, that we had grown this thing to, uh, you know, it it literally had scaled quickly and we had an amazing run. But to go from where we were to where the next level of competition was literally would have required leveraging everything plus. And um, and even then, I wasn't sure it's going to be enough because the next level of competition was substantially larger than we were. And so I, you know, I, we had some, we had a couple of, of our competitors that were dear friends. And, uh, and so I was talking with them, sharing my concerns with, with taking on so much debt to make this thing work. And uh, literally it came down to, you know what, I don't think I'm going to do this because um, I don't want to risk these people's lives for my ego. Yeah. And, uh, and my, com- my competitors, I knew they'd take care of them and they did. And so it was better to sell. That's really cool. All right, so then you make a transition
0: over to private equity. How does that happen? How did you connect with that? Oh, was that your, your mentor that was running the So
1: So at the same time that I was selling my company, and I actually I didn't even know this because he kept it so hush-hush. He was actually in the process of negotiating the sale of his company. I mean, a much, much larger company. And so um, as I was contemplating what to do, he, re, he said to me, he says, hey, he said, um, why don't you sell it? It was his, his recommendation. He was like, sell it come work for me. He says, I I'm starting, I want to start this private equity firm, but from a different point of view, and I want to focus on some different things. He says, I need help though. because He says, I'm running this, you know, this, this 800 pound gorilla over here. So I don't have time to dedicate to it. So come over, help me build it. And, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. And that was literally all the structure he had basically it was like, here's the idea I have. I need help because I'm running this thing over here. So, uh, if you sell it, you know, you have a job and that's, that's, kind of what it was. <laughs> All right, so then you guys start off and build out a, a private equity
0: firm together. So what was the, what were some of the lessons in there and and how were you running private equity differently?
1: So we um from the, fir- the differently was we had a a triple bottom line approach, but the the three repro- which is not unique, but um our approach was and that is our first and foremost our first focus was financial because if you're not making money, you're not a legitimate uh, private equity firm. You're not viable either. So I got to make money. Second was uh, what we called cultural return. And that was a focus on our people. We wanted to really focus on building relational health in the lives of our employees, in their families, and in the communities in which they they were involved. And the third we called um, uh, spiritual return. And so we really wanted to make a difference in their lives spiritually as well and, uh, and for God's kingdom. And so that was the approach that we took. And, uh, and we were, we were very successful at that. We had a lot of people that uh, we, they would tell their stories about, you know, when they came to work for us, they were, you know, they're a mess or whatever it was and how they were able to grow and they were able to become a better version of themselves as a result of, of working with us.
0: I like it. Okay. So you scale that thing up as well. I mean, you got that up to 60 full-time employees and then a few thousand kind of underneath the umbrella of the PE firm. What were the kinds of firms that you guys were you know, investing in or acquiring?
1: Was uh, manufacturing and distribution were the two primary. Um, and so uh, it was a, uh, interestingly enough, before he sold the the big company, he had already invested in another one uh, years ago. And it just so happened, it was a family owned business in Florida. And uh, he was on the board and it just so happened that one by one, the owners, um, be, the family began to sell shares and they sold them to him. So by the time he sold his company, he was a majority shareholder in this other company. So we already had our first major acquisition done. And that became the fuel then that uh, in addition to the um, the sale of the company, obviously, that was our powder to reinvest. Um, but we already had our first operational company that was growing quite rapidly. So yep, so we had that. and and then uh, over time, we basically wanted to build a like a platform model where we had five major platforms. We had, we had uh, uh, construction, we had manufacturing, we had distribution, uh, we had recreation and, uh, and technology. And, um, and basically what we wanted to do was position the company, um, the holding company in a way so we would become basically a support system for each of the platforms and the platform leaders so they can do their own M&A work. And that's the way it functions today. How do you support companies within that network? What, what, kind, what does support mean? Support means um, you're providing, uh, oftentimes you're providing financial support. We often refer to it as uh, we'd lend our balance sheet so that they could make acquisitions. We've legal. So we'd provide legal support. We always had a legal uh, retainer and then eventually had legal on staff. And uh, uh, leadership development, HR. So we would provide a lot of that in-house. We do a lot of hiring either with them or for them. And then leadership development, we would go on site. We would train their teams. Um, oftentimes we would recruit um, if a CEO either didn't stay or we had to recruit a CEO, we would often do that. So we made sure that they kind of went through our hiring process and our training. So they had our ethos to take with them. Uh, organizational culture was extremely important to us, very focused on that. And so uh, so those are just a few ways. I mean, there, are, there were a ton of other ways as well, too, but those were probably the biggest.
0: One of the rumors on the street is that anytime a you know a company sells to a PE firm, the PE firm replaces the CEO. How often, you know, what percentage of the time is the PE firm replacing the CEO, and what percentage of the time is that the CEO wants to leave, and the you know the PE firm is
1: is helping that happen? Yeah, that's a great question, and I think um, honestly, it depends on the PE firm and it depends on their process. In our case, uh, we did a lot of deals where we allowed the owner to retain some form of ownership usually no more than 20% and uh, and they would stay on and uh and so and that was a successful 50% of the time and so sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't quite frankly so it was uh, i guess that was about a 50% success rate and uh if it didn't work out then we would uh replace the ceo and uh and it usually was one of the past owners And at that time, either they would um, sell their shares or retain their shares, but no longer be an operating member of the company. So um, our desire was not necessarily to walk in and replace the CEO or the leadership team. Our desire was to work with them, but to bring in um, from a cultural perspective, especially our focus on people development and leadership development. And uh, and and that's and if they didn't get on board with that, then that's where we would uh, have talks about replacing um, the CEO.
0: Interesting. All right. So there's a lot of our members of our COO Alliance. We have this global network of second in commands members from 17 countries. They all typically are in around the 40 million dollar size, but their smallest is 5 million, the biggest is about 1.2 billion. There's a lot of discussion around um, selling companies to PE firms or you know working with PE firms for financing or doing M&A. Curious, how what, what should a company, if they're looking to sell to a PE firm or work with a PE firm, how do they select a good PE firm? What do they watch out for? What are kind of the, you know, open the kimono, show us what, what they should be careful of or what's good and how to know it's good.
1: Yeah, no, great questions. So I think you need to, it, it depends on your why. Why do you want to bring in PE? Is it to sell the company? Is it to just get some fuel to help the company scale and grow? So basically, like a partnership. And um, and because different PE firms have different focuses, and so one of the things you want to focus on or know is what is the um, how is that PE firm funded? If they're funded by institutional investors, more than likely there is a very defined time frame on how long they're allowed to hold the company. Usually, it's usually it's in the five to ten year range. And so that's the first thing, understand how they're funded. If it's a family office, they can usually hold indefinitely. And so, and you can usually tell that by looking at their website, talking to their principals, whoever it is, find out what their philosophy is on hold time. If it's more of a legacy minded private equity firm, they're going to hold it for, you know, as long as it makes sense to do so. If it's an institutional private equity, it's going to be almost always, I shouldn't say it's not always, always, but almost always going to be a defined time hold. Find out their philosophy on leadership development. Do they do they typically keep CEOs? Do they not keep CEOs. What's the reporting structure back to the PE firm? Um, you know how do how do uh, does the PE firm pretty much allow them to operate as is? Uh, some PE some PE firms buy companies and basically say, "Hey, as long as you're meeting their, our return requirements, do your thing." Other ones come in and say, "Don't care if meet return requirements or not. We're replacing all of you." And so these are the types of questions you want to make sure that you're asking.
0: Okay. So here's, here's kind of the next level of questions. This is, you know, you and I are sitting down as best friends and I'm getting ready to sell my company to a PE firm and I'm starting the negotiations with them. How do I negotiate? These are fucking pros. It's like negotiating with sharks. (laughs) What, what are the biggest things that I can do to negotiate successfully with a PE firm? So that the deal is win, win plus one. It's not win, lose.
1: And that's the best way to do it. So understand um, before you start talking with professionals, uh, you need to have made sure that you have talked to your own professionals, accountants, lawyers, understand the process. Also understand the value of your organization. Uh, Do a, uh, figure out a quality of earnings, get a quality of earnings report done. So you understand um, basically how your company makes money and the value that's associated to those earning streams. You need to have a very good idea going into it. Okay. My company produces X and this industry is seeing, you know, multiples of X times, whatever it is. And so you need to understand that within a very narrow, as narrow a range as possible, what you think your company is worth. Uh, that's for Second, you need to also know what do you want out of this? Do you want um, cash all up front? Do you want earnings? Uh, typically, if you're willing to carry some of the debt and you're willing to not share, not sell all your company up front, there's oftentimes a way to actually make more money for the sale of your company if you're willing to accept some of the risk. If you're basically saying, nope, I want completely cashed out all up front, all at once, no no risk in it for me, more than likely, you're going to have to accept some kind of a discount. If you're willing to stay in it, you can probably get a premium. And so those are kinds of things. And then you and I say, do you want a job or not? Do you want to continue working or not? If you do, you need to understand, you need to figure out, okay, what is your time worth? What what position do you hope to have? And what do you hope to be paid? Are there areas that
0: all PE firms are kind of willing, I just did air quotes there, if people are listening and not on our YouTube channel, but are there areas that PE firms are kind of willing to concede on that you don't think they are? Like, Are there areas that they're willing to back down on or give away that
1: um, it's again, as you're asking, it's a great question, Cameron. It's, it depends on the PE firm. Depends, right? It really depends. Um, yeah, yeah I'd say that, I'd say that most PE firms that I have dealt with and I, um, that I have, um, uh, interacted with, I mean, I either, I have, uh, several private equity firms that, uh, I absolutely love, I love dearly and, uh, and I think they're reasonable. So I think as long as there is a, a sense of reasonableness to it, there should be a consideration given for it. I mean, obviously, if you ask for the moon, uh, probably not going to get that. Interesting. Interesting stage for sure. Where do companies go wrong
0: in the process? Where do companies you know, make mistakes either in the negotiations or uh, start there, like in, in the process of selling to PE firm? And then what can they do right once they've sold? Once the transaction has happened and now you're part of the PE group, what can they do that, that really does work well?
1: Um, let me start with that one. So yeah. um, I would say that embrace your PE partner. Em- embrace yeah. what they're bringing to the table. Hopefully by then you have gone through enough relationship building and and vetting and due diligence that you understand what you're getting into. You want to know you need to do as much if you're selling your company or bringing on a partner, in in especially in PE, you need to do as much due diligence as they're going to do. And I advise that to everybody to think about selling their company. You need to be vetting them. You need to be making sure if they're asking you questions, you need to be asking them questions. They're interviewing you; you interview them Um, because these are about these are people that are about to either you're going to work with them, or they're going to be your boss, or they're going to take over your baby. Any of those three, and so you want to know exactly what it is that you're getting into. And I think that's probably one of the first place. It's also one of the biggest areas people fall down on. They don't do enough due diligence on their own, and and diligence is so critical. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people that have done deals and they're like, well, I didn't even see that coming. And it's like, you should have seen that coming. What did you miss? How did you miss it? Yeah. I like that a lot. All right. You have a book coming out. I do. Called Un- Unengaged. I do.
0: Yep. What's it about? And how do you go from building these two successful companies to then wanting to
1: become an author? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so two years ago, I decided, so I, after, after private equity, I spent a year in banking as a, a CFO and, Banking's not for me. So, and I knew that immediately. And so I gutted it as long as I could. Then, um, then I launched this business. And basically, my first client was a dear friend of mine. I was on his board for several years. And we were, uh, as a board, we were telling him he had to build an executive team. And so I joined him for a year, basically. It was my only client and uh, helped him build that. And so then two years ago, uh, full bore wanted to write. I don't know. I don't know why I got into it. I just, I had this desire to write, had it for a long time. So I wrote my first book, Unsatisfied When Less Is More came out last October. It was not the book I wanted to write, Cameron. And there's many reasons why I won't get into those, but the book I really wanted to write is the book I just wrote. So it's called Unengaged Building Flourishing Organizations. It's really written towards organizational leaders, all sizes, doesn't matter how small or how large. If you are passionate about restoring or uh, implementing humanity back into uh, the workforce and really treating people like people and helping them become the best version of themselves. I refer to as flourishing. This book is for you. Mm. And so it focuses on three pillars, empathy, empowerment, and excellence. And how do you implement this in your organization?
0: Have you heard of the book by Matthew Kelly called The Dream Manager? Sure have. It sounds like you're in... He's not the same, but like in alignment with where Matthew's work would be. Like he's he's God Squad as well, like you are, but he's also just like um that was a really formative foundational book for me about caring more about the people than you do about the company. And if you care more about them, they're gonna care about the company.
1: Yep. Is that yep kind of line up with some of your work? It does actually. Interestingly enough, Matthew Kelly's consulting firm is called Floyd Consulting. Yeah, the CEO of his firm wrote my forward. Kate Vollman. That's great. Nope. Yeah. So small world.
0: I had dinner with Matthew. Um, my son and I had dinner with him in Vancouver oh, oh. 10 years ago now. But it's funny. I was sitting at, a, at an event. I've, I've invested in myself being in a part of a lot of mastermind communities over the years. And I did seven years of one of them called Strategic Coach. And I remember sitting in a strategic coach meeting in Chicago and mentioning the book, The Dream Manager. And, and the whole group of 60 people started laughing. I'm like, what's so funny? This is good stuff. And this woman at the other side of the room puts her hand up and she goes, Hi, my name is Mary Miller. I'm the book. You know, the book was based on my story. I'm like, That's like, really, I didn't know it was really real. That like she, she and her husband were in the room and they were the ones that had built the janitorial company that the dream manager was written about. And so, anyway, Mary and I became friends and um, it was a pretty funny story to see that. I just thought it was a fable. I didn't know it was actually about a real company.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, the company I worked for with my friend for a year. They had just implemented the dream manager program in their company. And uh, the stories that we had were unbelievable. Yeah. Just the excitement. And so, yeah, good stuff. It's fantastic. And it's it's had a really, really big lasting impact
0: on all of the companies that I've worked with over the years. All right. I want to go back to the 22-year-old, Matt, and I want you to give yourself some advice. What advice would you have loved to have had at 22 that you now know to be true today?
1: Don't do it on your own. Don't do it alone. Don't even try. Ask for help and receive it and realize that there's power in companionship and there's power in relationship. At 22, I was very much a maverick and do it myself, go on my own. And uh, that's been one of the biggest, biggest learnings of my life, both professionally and personally, Cameron.
0: And so you don't necessarily mean a co-owner. You mean like mentoring and advice and and asking for help, but you don't necessarily mean going alone as as having a co-owner of your business.
1: That's correct. Yes. Mentoring. uh, Even now I have a personal board of directors. We meet quarterly. We talk about personal, we talk about business. And so, yeah, just have somebody that goes with you. And what I have found throughout my entire life is that uh, I should say, well, since my twenties is that people are willing. You just have to ask.
0: That's great. Matt Lesser, thank you so much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Really appreciate the time.
1: Thank you, sir. Appreciate it.